as those ushers come, you're thinking, what on earth? We just did one song. We're sitting down. People are still coming in. We just want to make it extra awkward for those of you who are late today. That's what we were hoping for. So no, we didn't. Just keep coming in and, and having a seat. Uh, there is no worries about that. So we um, are going to look at Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20 today. And I think you'll see that we, we just wanted to spend the back end of our time together worshiping as a response to the truth that we're going to hear in God's word. Because I think what you'll see is that this is one of those truths that just calls for us um, to respond with worship. And so we wanted to create some time on the back end of our time together today to respond to the truth of God's word by worshiping him in song and then also some time to pray together as well. So we want you to be uh, ready for that. You can turn in your Bibles if you have them to Colossians chapter one. As those offering plates are making their way by, I'd be remiss, by the way, if I didn't say, if you're new with us, just let those go by. Those of us who are members here, who uh, this is our church family, we give to support the kingdom work that God is doing here. And so that's our way of giving back as an act of worship to God. But we hope that this service and your time with us, we hope it's a gift to you. So uh, we're not looking for anything from you there. Well, uh, I'll show you some pictures here in a second. But <clears throat> how many of you have ever been someplace that uh, was just so beautiful that it, it blew you away? I mean, you were just astounded. Anybody? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of you. I am a big fan of getting out into the middle of nowhere. And um, when I was 26, I went to Yosemite uh, National Park with a good buddy of mine. Anybody been to Yosemite? Okay, so if you've been there, uh, I hope you've seen uh, some of these things that I'm gonna show you. If you haven't been there, let me kind of set the scene for you, right? So I flew in with a buddy of mine. Uh, we, we met in Reno, and then we drove down about three hours. And when you come into the park, you come in from the east and from the north, and there's really one road down into the valley. So if you're gonna go all the way to the Valley of Yosemite, uh, there's one road in. And so, you know, we're winding around and we're in, the up, uh, we're in the high country and we're up there and we stop and get out and we hike around a little bit and we're thinking, man, this is stunning, it's beautiful. We're seeing the sequoias and the beautiful trees and the just massive granite rock found, you know, formations. And, and uh, my buddy Keith and I, we're just like, man, this is amazing. So we get back in the car, the, the sweet Plymouth PT Cruiser that we had rented, Highly recommend, right? And so we're cruising around, we're driving, and we're doing you know, all the switchbacks, and we're kind of turning back and forth and winding on this road. And at one point, you get to where there's trees kind of on every side of you, and so you're kind of, you're kind of hemmed in by the trees. You don't see a whole lot of what's around you, so you're very much unprepared for what's gonna come next. So you round a corner, and you're driving through this row of trees, and then a, a tunnel is bored through uh, a part of this mountain that you're driving on. And so you go through this tunnel, and when you come out the other side, a view opens up that absolutely causes you to almost drive your car off the edge of the cliff. I mean, it is so stunning. It's actually called tunnel view because it's the view that you get as you come through this tunnel. And I'll show it to you here. When you come around the corner, this is what you see. And the picture does not do it justice. It is stunning. So that's El Capitan in the center. Back middle is Half Dome, which is one of the coolest hikes you can ever do. Four hours up, four hours down. Uh, and then Bridalville Falls right here is the, is the waterfall that you see. And then this is my second favorite spot. And it's a, they rival one another in Yosemite. For my favorite spot I've ever put my feet on this planet uh, is that edge of that cliff right there. It's called Taft Point. Uh, and you can stand, if you're gutsy, you can stand right at the edge. I stood about five feet back. I don't know what that says about my personality, but that's where I stood. And, and gazed down into the valley at Yosemite. And again, there's El Capitan uh, in the distance there. But I'm sure, like me, you've been to some places that have just taken your breath away. I mean, they just, they just kind of knock your socks off when you look at them. And this, for me, is that place. I, I ha have plans to get my whole family back there, right? And for us to go cross country and do the whole thing and figure out how we can, how we can get back there. Because this place is a special place to me. I mean, just spending time in this place is remarkable. Um, and the thing that I think that occurred to me as I was thinking about this, actually, oddly enough, my parents are there right now uh, on vacation visiting. Uh, and they, had, they were sending pictures, and it reminded me of that this week. And the thing about this view is that it's the kind of view that when you come through that tunnel, right, or when you stand at Taft Point, it just expands something in your heart. Like you just feel like you're breathing deeper, right? I love C.S. Lewis uh, in one of his books. He writes about, he says, we've, we've lost the ability to be men with chests 
And what he means by that is he's sort of like broad-chested men who are courageous and brave and have virtue, right? And men who sort of have hearts that are expansive for the things of God. I love that image that Lewis paints. And I think images like this, when you kind of come through that tunnel and come out the other side and see the grandeur of Yosemite Valley, you know, of Muir Valley open up in front of you, you are just astounded. Something in you, or at least something in me, just expands and grows bigger and wider and more in awe of the world that God made. The reason I share that with you, I'm guessing you have a place like that, places you've been that have sort of just caused you to be awestruck uh, and caused you to pause and just sort of realize, I can't take in all the grandeur in front of me. Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, what Paul is aiming to do is give us a view of Jesus that is so grand and so big and so awe-inspiring that we're going to say, I can't possibly take in everything that is in this view here. He is going to explain to us who Jesus is in such a way that we are meant to be like when I came through that tunnel. We are meant to slam the brakes on the car and just go, wait, I have to stop and drink this in because I can't possibly fathom the grandeur of what I'm looking at. And that's what Colossians chapter one, verse 15 through 20 is. It is, it is the tunnel view, if you will, of God's grandeur in Jesus Christ revealed to us. Now remember, if you've been with us for the series, what's happened up to this point is that Paul started his letter, and when he started his letter to the Colossians, he started just by giving thanks, right? He says, I'm thankful, I'm thankful that you have faith in Christ. I'm thankful for your love for all the saints. And, and then he went on from that after expressing his just gratitude for their friendship and their love for the Lord and their relationship with him. After expressing that thankfulness, then he went on to say, this is how I pray for you. And Ryan, <clears throat> last week, if you were here, he did a brilliant job of unpacking that for us. And it, it shaped my prayer life this week. It caused me to be reminded, yes, pray for the people you love, that they would have uh, insight into God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Isn't that a good prayer that Ryan walked us through last week and helped us understand the, the, the meaning of that text? So having done that, having given thanks, and then having prayed and said, this is how I pray for you, you would think that it would be fitting to do what he's going to do in chapter two, which is he's going to move on to sort of explain like, you know, those false teachers that have come into your midst and they're teaching you things that they're just not true. And I want you to understand why they're not true. And so I'm going to address those things with you. That's what he's going to do in chapter two. And you would think it would be appropriate to go ahead and move to that. But before he ever does that, what he's going to do now in these Six verses is he's going to pause and he's going to just paint a picture. In fact, he's actually, this is meant to be a hymn, most, uh, most commentators think. It's meant to be a song, right? That, that Paul just stops to take time to sing a song about the grandeur of Jesus to the Colossians before he moves on to address anything else with them. And that's very instructive to us, yes? Because here's my conviction, right? is that if you want to walk with Jesus faithfully, like if that's, if you've given your life to him, you say, I, I want to walk with him. If you want to do that, you need these kinds of grand views of Jesus. You need the expansive vista of the character of Jesus and that view to be available to you so that you can go back to it again and again. You need moments where you gaze upon the beauty of Jesus in the same way that you would gaze upon the beauty of that valley that I just showed you and that you would be in awe of it. You need those moments, and Paul knows that, and so he gives one of those moments to the Colossians before addressing any technical issues or challenging issues or interpersonal issues or just the sort of life in the church together and how are you gonna do that, and if these people are fighting, let's, let's resolve that and let's work it out. Before he does any of that, he's gonna say, look, I gave thanks for you, I told you how I pray for you, and now I want to open up an expansive vista of the nature of Jesus. Does that make sense? And you need that, and I need that. If we're gonna make it through uh, and walk with Jesus in the midst of hard circumstances and have wisdom to know how to address things that we encounter all the time in our places of work and in our families and challenges with worldview and cultural challenges that we face, if we're gonna do all of that, the, one of the key things is to have this kind of uh, a vista opened up in front of us 
rather than just first actually addressing the technicalities of how I should think about this or think about that. The first thing to, to say is, how do I think about Jesus? Who do, I, who do I think he is? And what do the scriptures tell me about who he is? So that being the case, can, I just, can we just read Colossians 1, 15 through 20? And just, I think you'll find, you're not gonna be able to drink all this in. But stay with me, we'll try. We'll try our best. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this text, it centers around verse 18 in that phrase, that he might be preeminent. And we've entitled this series in Colossians, The Unrivaled Christ, because unrivaled is essentially a synonym for preeminent. When we say that in all things that he might be preeminent, what we're really saying is that he would be unrivaled in our affection for him, unrivaled in our devotion of thought, unrivaled in loyalty that we uh, express towards him, unrivaled in our commitment to him, unrivaled in the way that we uh, filter all things through his nature when we think about them in the world, that he would be unrivaled, to have the first place, that he'd be first and most to us. And so the argument here that Paul is making is that Christ should be unrivaled in our lives, in all the ways that I just mentioned, that Christ should be unrivaled in our lives because he is two things that Paul is gonna point out here in this text. Because he is both a sufficient savior and he is a sovereign source, if you'll excuse the alliteration, all right? He is a sufficient savior and he is a sovereign source. Those are the two things that he is going to try and illuminate for us about the nature of Jesus to show us how grand and how good he is so that we might be convinced that he should be unrivaled in our lives. Unrivaled in the way we approach our work, unrivaled in the way we approach our family, that all of it goes through him. So let's start with that idea that he is a sufficient savior. And let me show you that again in the text. There's a couple places, right? Verse 18 says, uh, he is the beginning in the middle. Now I'm picking up the middle of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So there, there's the that there, and that's an important word because what it means is essentially that what comes after the that is caused by what comes before it, right? And so he says, he's the firstborn from the dead. What's, what's Paul alluding to there? Jesus's crucifixion and then his resurrection, right? That he was raised from the dead. He's the first one to be so. And so, because he is the firstborn from the dead, because he went to the cross and then rose from the grave, that is the reason then that Paul says, so that, this occurred, so that he might be unrivaled, that he might be preeminent. So he's pointing to the salvation that is offered in Christ through his cross and saying because of what he has done there, he takes first place of preeminence. And essentially what this text is going to do is it's going to start from that idea of his being preeminent as the pivot around which the whole text works. Everything else either points back to that phrase if it happens after it or it points forward to that phrase if it comes before it. Everything revolves around the pivot point of so that he might be what church? Preeminent. Okay. Okay. 
And the first linkage to that term is he is the firstborn from the dead. Now look at the other places that sort of relate to this idea that Christ is a sufficient Savior, all of it pointing to his unrivaled nature. So we see he is the head of the body, the church. That's how verse 18 begins. He is the head of the body, the church. And then it goes on in 18b, the second half, to say, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then in verse 20, he says, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. All right, now I'm not going to unpack each one of those phrases, but what I want you to understand is that what Paul is trying to do is he is trying to, to say to us and to the Colossians, that, that Christ's salvation, the, the salvation found in him, is absolutely complete. That there is nothing lacking in the salvation. Nothing that needs to be added to. Nothing that needs to be done uh, in order to sort of uh, trigger it, to make it effective. There is nothing that needs to be added to the work that Christ has done to be our sufficient Savior. His work is sufficient. That's the point that Paul is making there. And just look at how he kind of plays that out, right? So he's saying, here's how complete salvation in Christ is. It's so complete that it gives us a head to lead us and from whom we derive strength and a family to walk behind, right? So when he says he's the head of the body, the church, what he's getting at there, this idea of an analogy of a body with a head, the head does what? The head tells the body what to do, Right? It tells it where to go, what to do. And so the idea is Jesus is in charge of his church. So he says the salvation in Jesus that you have is so complete, Colossians, that it not only gives you eternity to be with God and saves you from your sins so that you can be you know, reconciled to God the Father, it also gives you here and now someone to lead you through life, a head that tells you and guides you into what it is that you should do and who you should be. He is the head, salvation in Christ, comes with someone who will lead you. And not only that, it also comes with a family. It comes with this thing called the church of whom Christ is the head. He is the head of the body, the church. In other words, I will be your head. My salvation is so complete that I will be the one who leads you. I will be the one who strengthens you to do the things I call you to do. That's how complete my salvation is. And thirdly, I will give you a family in which to situate yourself so that you might experience a little taste of heaven. Now, some of you are saying, the church has not been a little taste of heaven for me. It should be. No excuses. Right? The way that we are honest with one another, vulnerable with one another, the way we challenge one another, right? the way that we comfort one another, bear one another's burdens, all of those things. Look, I, I know that some of you um, have a pretty low expectation when it comes to church. You think, I will show up, I will get a sermon, I will listen to some worship, and I'll sing along, and then I'm, I'm good. That's all I want the church to give me, and that's enough. And I would tell you, the church is meant to be so much more Because one, Christ is the head of his body, so he's created everyone who receives salvation to live inside of that body, right? To endure the challenges of that, the relational challenges that come with that, but also to to experience a taste of what it will be like when we're unified with him completely through the way we live life together with one another, Right? When I'm willing to be vulnerable about my sin patterns and struggles, when I'm willing to say this is the kind of stuff that goes on in my head that I'm wrestling through and trying to figure out how to put those bad thoughts to death and walk in what is true and right, when I'm honest about those things and vulnerable with people within the church and, I, and they show grace and mercy towards me and love me in, in the midst of that, you know, and they join me in my struggles, when that happens then I am meant to get a taste of what it will be like when I am reunited with my God once and for all, along with all the saints. So when he says the first thing about the sufficiency of his salvation, it's, it's literally to point out that his salvation is so complete that it comes with guidance 
and it comes with a family. The second thing that he does to point out how sufficient his salvation is is when he says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, he's talking about something different there than you may think he is. So when you hear that, uh, and I hear that, the first thing we immediately think of probably is go, oh, he's, he's the firstborn from the dead means that he died and then he rose again from the dead, therefore one day I will rise again from the dead just as he has, and that is true. Somebody say amen to that. It's absolutely true, that's going to occur, but he's talking about something even more there when he says he is the firstborn from the dead. He is essentially saying he has instituted for his people whom he saves a resurrection way of life that can be lived out now. In other words, the person who walks with Jesus experiences a resurrection quality of life so that they experience regularly throughout their life in increasing measure the fact that emotions that once felt dead are resurrected and raised again. Relationships that felt dead and were buried have been raised again to reconciliation. Things that once were broken and lost and devastated and damaged can be raised from the dead today, now, because Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. And we are meant to taste and experience resurrection life now, not just someday. So when the scriptures say he is the firstborn from the dead, he's saying he has made a whole new species of human beings. And that species is a group of people who walk in resurrection life. It's a whole new way to be human. Do you see it? It's a whole new way to be human that Jesus has opened up. And that's what it means when it says his salvation is so sufficient, it's so complete that it comes with resurrection power now. The third thing he says there in the phrase we looked at is, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in, or in heaven, is talking about the cosmic nature of Jesus' salvation, how grand it is. Essentially, he's saying that because human beings are saved and redeemed, he also will renew and remake all of the created world. Right? I mean, you just looked at the Yosemite Valley and that looked pretty stunning. That valley is affected and impacted by sin. Imagine what it will look like when sin no longer has hold over that. It's going to be amazing. Now, a little aside here, because some people read this text and they think that it teaches what we call universalism, which is the idea that regardless of whether you have faith in Jesus or, or you don't, you will be saved. Because here he says, he will, all things will be reconciled, right? And so the question is, what are the all things? He actually says, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So some read it and say, does that mean that someday, like fallen angels, perhaps even Satan himself will be reconciled back to God? Which, which raises a big question, Right? That's not what he's teaching here because if he was going to teach that, he'd have to contradict himself because you get texts like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, which is the next, uh, or yeah, two books over from uh, Colossians. And here's a hard truth that he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. In the middle of the verse, he says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So my point in sharing that with you is that if Colossians 1, if this is the same author, this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians, this is Paul writing to the Colossians, he'd have to be completely directly contradicting himself to be saying all people will experience salvation and be reconciled to God regardless of whether they have faith in Jesus or not because he just said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in many other places that those who have not placed their faith in Jesus will be separated from God for eternity. That's a sad and horrific truth, but one we have to proclaim so that we might say, come to Jesus. The offer is available to everyone. There's no one, regardless of color of skin or socioeconomic status or intellectual ability or whatever. I mean, there is no one that is prevented from coming who would come. That offer is extended. So when Paul says in Colossians chapter one there that all things will be reconciled to him, whether things on earth or in heaven, we have to ask, well, what, what does he mean? And more likely what he means is exactly what he says in Romans chapter eight. 
Because in Romans chapter eight, he paints this glorious picture about what I just talked about when I was talking about the Yosemite Valley to say that creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the created world is looking for human beings to be reconciled to the Father and to be redeemed because once humans as the pinnacle of creation are redeemed, then they know that their turn comes next. And, And the mountains become what mountains were always meant to be. And the trees become what trees were always meant to be. And the creation, the whole created order gets renewed and restored. That's how cosmic in size and in scope the salvation is that is in Jesus. It doesn't just save humans. It restores a whole creation, which is astonishing. Do you get the sense of how big and sufficient Jesus is as a savior church? You can imagine so he's writing to these Colossians and they've got these people who are telling them Jesus is nice, but you're gonna need to add on to that. You're gonna need to do some more. You're gonna need to to partake of some rituals, make sure you get those right, and then you're gonna need to have these sort of charismatic, ecstatic experiences, visions from on high, and and once you've kind of had those things, then probably then your salvation will be sufficiently complete. And Paul is writing to say, how dare you add anything to the work of Jesus? You can, you can imagine a, a man imprisoned and, and perhaps on the outskirts of that prison, uh, it, it's built up on the rocks and, and down below is the ocean and the beach and he can hear for year after year, he can hear the waves crashing and he can imagine the ocean, he can smell the salt in the air, but he cannot put his toes in the water and it is torture every day that he listens to the sound of the freedom of the ocean and of the beach to be enjoyed and he's locked in prison. And then one day a rescuer shows up and does away with the guards and shows up at the door and unlocks it and opens and says, come with me, you are free. At which point another prisoner yells, yeah, but first you're gonna need to do 10,000 push-ups, 1,000 squats, then you're gonna need to memorize and say this, these, these uh, little tropes about a thousand times and then you need to turn in circles, rub your belly and pat your head and do that about 20,000 times and then you can be free. And so the prisoner drops down and starts to do his push-ups. And all the while the rescuer just stands there and goes, I've opened the door, I've done away with the guard, All you need to do is take my hand and I will lead you to the beach where, by the way, I have built a home for you and it is gorgeous and glorious. So come with me. And we are prone to stand in that prison turning in circles and rubbing our belly. And it's so silly because the salvation that is in Christ is complete. He is a sufficient savior. Now the next thing that he's gonna talk about is that he is a sovereign source. And the two are related, and you need to understand the way they're related because it's important, because he's gonna actually spend the bulk of his time on this idea of of Jesus as sovereign source of all things, of all created things. And he's essentially going to say he is a sufficient savior, and the reason he's able to be a sufficient savior is because he is also a sovereign source of all things. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And because that's the case, he is able to be your savior, your sufficient savior. And so he's gonna, now the the pace kind of picks up because he begins to talk about the absolute astonishment of who this person Jesus was. Now, keep in mind for just a minute, as we look at these verses again, I need you to hold in your mind, because some of you have read this many times, and you've thought to yourself, yeah, and, and they just kind of become neat little phrases that you like and you kind of think, yeah, that's a neat phrase. But you need to understand that Paul is writing these things about a man who lived and sat around the table with other men eating a meal 30 years prior to this. There are people still walking on the planet at the time that Paul is writing this who actually touched Jesus, who shook his hand, who sat with him and listened to the sound of his voice and now Paul is gonna say these things about him and it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, you can just imagine, right? You can just imagine, if I said, Bruce, come up here and Bruce came and he stood next to me and I said, he is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn from among the dead. He is the firstborn of all creation. For through him, all things were made and he sustains all things. In him, all things hold together. At which point, right, all of you should get up in unison and walk out. Right, because how insane would it be for me to bring another person up here, stand him next to me. Bruce, you're awesome, buddy, and I love you, but you are not the firstborn of all creation. You do not hold all things together, right? So, yes, fair. Nikki, yes. Okay, yeah, awesome. All right, good. I just want to make sure. To say that about a human being is, is mind-boggling, right? You need to get yourself in that mindset that Paul is declaring about Jesus some things that are so astonishing to say about someone who walked on the planet and who, who partook of meals and, and sat there. You could touch him. Right? You could listen to the sound of his voice and he's going to say these things about him. He is unlike anyone who has ever walked the planet. So, now follow me in this, okay? Here's the things that he's going to say about Jesus as our sovereign source. The first thing he's going to say is he makes visible what is invisible. That's the first thing, right? He makes visible what is invisible. He says the phrase in verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the visible manifestation of a God who is spirit and does not have body and therefore cannot be seen. But he makes that God visible. And then in verse 19, and in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Two very important phrases there. The fullness of God, not a portion of God was pleased to dwell, but the fullness of God. You get the idea that it's expressing all of who God is dwelled in Jesus, yes? That's deeply important. The fullness of God dwelled in him. And then the second phrase is so key. And it was pleased to dwell. Not required to dwell, not apathetically dwelled, not just, eh, he's earned it, I guess I'll let my fullness dwell in him. But rather his fullness was pleased to dwell because in the incarnate Christ, we find the second person of the Trinity, uncreated and co-eternal with God, who is now made human, takes on flesh, and God looks at that and he says, I am pleased for all my fullness to dwell in the man Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate God, the second person of the Trinity. Are you with me? This is what he's expressing to us. This is mind-boggling. This was nowhere in anyone's mind that God would do such a miraculous work. There was in the mind of people that he would send a rescuer, that he would send a Messiah, that he would send a Christ, one who could do a work, but there was no concept. There was, there was almost no idea that that one would be God himself. That in this one, all the fullness of God would be pleased to dwell. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. Remember, just to, just to kind of fill out the picture of this, do you remember, if you've read, if you've read your old, the Old Testament before, and then you've come across Exodus chapter 33, and if, you were, if some of you remember it, if you don't, I'll tell you about it. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And in the midst of that dialogue with God, at one point Moses says, God, show me your glory, which is a really bold request, right? Show me your glory. And God says, I imagine with a smirk on his face a little bit, right? Like, <laughs> he says, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm gonna cover you with my hand and then I'm gonna pass by and I'm gonna let you see my back. And by the way, when, when he saw his back, his face shined with so much glory that the people said, would you please wear a veil because we can't look at you. It's like going blind. I'm gonna show you my back, but no one, God says to Moses, no one may see my face and live. My glory is too much. It's too great. On the drive in, Today, my, my daughter had her Bible open and was reading in the back seat. And she, she recognized, uh, and I was like, that's pretty perceptive. Good job. She read, Lord, and she realized, how come all the, every time it says Lord in my New Testament, how come it's all capitalized? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And I was like, that's because 
they're translating a Hebrew word called Yahweh, which is God's personal name that he revealed to the nation. But they thought his name was so holy and he was so pure that they wouldn't even take his name on their lips. They wouldn't say his name, nor would they write it. So instead of writing Yahweh out, they would just write the Hebrew equivalent of Y-H-W-H. They would just write what it's called the tetragram. tetragram. They would just write those letters and anytime you'd see it, you wouldn't speak it. You would read it and you'd come to the word Yahweh or the letters that represented the word Yahweh and you would just say, you would say, Lord. But you wouldn't say Yahweh because it was too holy, too pure, right? And so we were explaining that to Kinley. That's why it says Lord in all capitals because they're translating this word and you just kind of saw her face go, whoa, right? Like that's astonishing, that's astounding, right? The point, right, is you may not look upon the holiness of God and live. But now listen to what John says about Jesus. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Did you catch that? We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then Hebrews chapter one, verse three, a, a parallel passage to this one in Colossians. says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when I say Jesus makes what is invisible visible, okay, I don't just mean that Jesus takes a God who is spirit and therefore cannot be seen and gives, that, gives a, a bodily representation of God so now we can see him. You know, goody for us, Right? What I mean is that God allows his fullness to dwell in the person of Jesus so that what once could not be seen, not, not just wasn't able to be seen, but the, the moral lapse of human beings make it impossible for us to see it and live. Now we can touch it and behold it in Jesus. God's holiness meets us in Jesus Christ, and we find that rather than destruction, we can receive grace, and we can be loved. That's astonishing. The next thing that we see about his, Jesus as sovereign source is that all things are his inheritance. All things are his inheritance. And the next phrase that we find after he is the image of the invisible God is he is the firstborn of all creation. Now let me make sure I help you understand there that what he's getting at is not that Jesus was born at some point, that he came into being at some point as if he didn't already exist. So God caused Jesus to be born and then through Jesus created the rest of the world. No, Jesus is co-eternal with God, has always existed, right? That's part of what it means to be God is to always have existed. So it's not saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation in the sense that he started into existence at some point in time. Rather, it's using the idea of the firstborn as a metaphor for the one who receives the inheritance, right? So when it says the firstborn of all creation, it means Jesus is the one who has inherited from the Father possession of all the created world and all the created cosmos. He is the inheritor, the rightful possessor of every square inch of the created universe. God has given it to him as his inheritance, as the son, the second member of the Trinity, which is deeply important to us because it reminds, it reminds me in my evangelistic endeavors when I try and share, the faith, share faith with others, I am reminded that I am not trying to, um, well, what I'm reminded of is that God has claimed supremacy and possession of every person on the planet, including me, including you, that everyone and everything belongs to him. They are his inheritance. That motivates me to share the gospel because what I'm doing is I'm sharing with someone who they, who they belong to. That they belong to, there is one who has inherited them and possesses them. And not everybody likes that idea, but it's true. The third thing that we see about his role, Jesus' role as sovereign source is the most direct idea of source is that he is the source, the creator of all created things. So we see the next phrase, for by him, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. That's pretty straightforward, right? That's not an overly complex idea. It's just essentially saying that everything that was created was created by him. There is nothing that exists which was not created by Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. From the oddest creature to the most mundane, from the largest, most concrete mountain to the immaterial ideas or the the seeds of ideas, our ability to reason and to think with logic, those are unseen, invisible things, and all of them are created by God. All the processes and structures that undergird human thriving are all created by God. Things visible and invisible, whether on earth or in heaven, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of it is created by him. Now, listen, the thing that always strikes me about that is just the sheer volume of it, right? I mean, regularly, uh, you know, you come home and your spouse, I mean, my wife might say, hey, look at all, let me tell you what I did today. And every time, I'm amazed. She can do more in an hour than I can do in 24 hours, right? I mean, it's the amount of work that can get done on that list is pretty impressive. But compared to this, I mean, come on, Right? Essentially, when I think about the volume, I mean, just the amount that what is being said here is everything that has been created has been created by him. That's a lot of work, right? There is nothing that is outside of his creation uh, power. Now, the fourth thing that we see is that he determines the purpose of every created thing. Now, this may be the one that's the most kind of brass tacks here, okay? So we get that he created all things, but then that last phrase, all things are created through him, and then there's a little phrase on the end of that, and what? And for him. Now when we use the phrase for, something is for somebody, we usually use it in in one of two ways and sometimes both. The first way that we often use it is is that we mean it's for their use. Like if I were to say, "I, I bought a toothbrush for my daughter, right? It's for her to what? To use, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And then the second way that we use that term is that it is, when we say something is for someone, we mean for their pleasure. So in the same way, I might say, those roses are for my wife, right? They're not to be used by her. They are for her pleasure, right? So when we say something is for someone, we typically mean both, both those things or one of those things. They are for their use, they are for their pleasure. And that is the way that Paul is using this phrase when he's talking about all created things existing for Jesus. He's saying they exist both what? For his use and for his pleasure, which means that he determines the purpose for every created thing. And this is where I want to kind of get you thinking a little bit here. That means that you and I do not determine the purpose for which we live. It means that he does. He sets the boundaries of our life, the length of it, and he determines the purpose to be accomplished in it and through it. And if we're honest, some of us sometimes think, well, this is my purpose, but really, God, I'd rather have this purpose. Could you do something? Could I have a different purpose from you, please? But we have, I mean, let's really think about this for a minute. Who do you want? The, the answer to this question for most of us, if sometimes in those more honest moments or maybe in our struggling moments, I would say, is we say, I, I want to determine the purpose of my life. I want to determine. And I think, really? Like, you can't even do complex math, right? And some of you are like, I can. Okay, well, maybe you have no social skills then. <laughs> kidding. Just kidding. Right? If I can't do certain things, do I really want to be the one who is dictating the purpose of my life? Or would it be better for me to say the one who dictates the purpose of my life is sovereign over all things, lacks no knowledge, and by the way, has died on a cross and risen from the dead to show and display his love for me? Would it be a good idea for him to determine the purpose of my life? I think so. All things exist through him and they exist for him. And that, so there's two levels of that that I want you to, to understand. One is that at a very basic level, kind of up and behind any other specific purpose for which we exist, any other specific work for which we are created, things that God has set aside for us to do, like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right? He has prepared in advance for us good works, right? Things that He's called us to do. Behind any specific works, we exist primarily and most for the pleasure of God. 
We exist for the pleasure of Jesus, to bring him delight, to cause him to be happy. I mean, if I can just say it in really layman's terms, right? We exist to bring Jesus pleasure. That's part of what it means that we are for him, for his pleasure. The other side of that is the more specific. We also exist to accomplish certain purposes, certain specific works that he has set out for us to do. We are for his use. And he establishes both those, both those things for us. We exist for his use and for his pleasure. And friends, can I just tell you, that if you walk a little while in that, I know, I know on the front end of that, particularly those of you who have not placed your faith in Jesus, I know on the front end of that, that sounds intimidating, it sounds scary, and it, honestly, it sounds like probably something you're not that interested in. But if you walk a little while in that, I would, I would challenge you to ask anyone who has said, I will let Jesus dictate the purpose of my life and the use of my life, the thing that, for which he wants to use me. I would, I would challenge you to find that person and find that even through the hardships of that, that they wouldn't say, I would have it no other way. Because once you get a taste of that, of walking in him establishing purpose for you, once you get a taste of that, there's just no going back. There's just no, like you're gonna get an appetite for something that you're never going to be able to untaste. And once you have the appetite for it, nothing else will satisfy Everything else tastes like spam compared to the filet mignon of walking in God's will. Please tell me you do not like spam more than you like filet mignon. <laughs> Makes me sad. I'll have to change the illustration to like dirt and filet mignon. The most uh, recent plan, I was thinking about this idea of all things exist for him, for his pleasure. Most recent uh, planet I'm aware of that has been discovered is one called Ross 128b. Now that's a terrible name, by the way. But Ross 128b, it is 11 light years away. It revolves around a star called, guess what, Ross 128. We gotta get more creative. Again, scientifically minded, right? It's a, a red dwarf star. It's about the same size as Earth. It completes an orbit around its star every 9.9 days, and it's considered an exoplanet, which means it's one which may, may have the conditions for life to exist on it, which is astounding. And we didn't know this planet existed until 2017, which means since the beginning of creation, this planet has been orbiting its sun 11 light years from us with no human knowledge that it ever existed, and someone might ask, why did God make that? For his pleasure. Because he delighted. There are unfathomable mysteries in the universe that you and I have no idea about, and God made them. Jesus made them. Why did he make them? Because it pleased him to do so. He said, I'm going to make Ross 128. I think he has a better name than Ross 128B. That's what I think. I think he calls it something way cooler and better than that. Right? And he's like, oh yeah, that one. I love that one. Oh, and guess what? Thousands and thousands and thousands of years after I've created the earth, I'm gonna let them discover it. It's gonna be great. They're gonna be blown away. And then they're gonna give it this crappy name. <laughs> Last thing we see about Jesus as our sovereign source is that he sustains all created things. The last little phrase I want you to look at is where he says, and he is before all things. In other words, meaning he, he preexists them all. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So he doesn't just make things. And he doesn't just say they're for my purposes, right? And then let them flame out. He says, they exist for me. They exist through me. And I'm also going to hold them together which means that he holds your thought life together. He holds your emotional stability together. He holds your, your being, your ability to breathe in and out, your physical existence, he holds together. He holds the planets in their orbits, right? He holds the sun in its place. Everything is held together through the power of this man who walked on the planet He holds them together. He sustains them. He sustains you. And so, of course, the, the right and wise response to that is to say, 
I, I need to be with this God. I need, to, I need to meet with him. I need to know him. I need to walk with him. I need to take his hand. I need, I need to hear from him. I need to know his word. I, I need to immerse myself in all that he is so that I might be sustained because he holds all things together. All right, I, I think about that and I think about the insufficiency of the purpose for which most people would say they live, which is their own happiness. That's the most common answer to the question nowadays. Like, what is the purpose of life? And most people would answer that question. It's my happiness. Like, just, I'm going to do what, what's going to bring me the most happiness. But it's such a, a, an empty philosophy of life because it has no ability to lead you through suffering. And it has, it has no ability to cause you to do something that's truly selfless for somebody else. It has no ability to, to, to give you a life of depth and substance and character. Like it just, it's, it's vapid. If you'll forgive my, my directness there. Happiness is not a pursuit worth making your purpose. I think about him saying, I hold, I, I sustain all things. I hold it together. I think about one who declares to me, oh, now there's, there's a purpose for life. There's one to come underneath who can give life a robustness, a, a depth of joy. And by the way, happiness as a byproduct, right, of just walking after him and living underneath his purpose. That's Paul's hymn. His hymn to Jesus about his glory and his greatness. It's his tunnel view moment in the book of Colossians. And you come around that bend and you come through that half mile tunnel in the mountain and it just, the gorgeous view opens up in front of you. Now I know I have not even come close to doing it justice. Go back to it again and again and again because you need this view. I thought it was appropriate that we would look at God's truth and then we'd worship together. So we just saved plenty of time here on the back end to, to worship. We're gonna sing a little bit, and then I do, at the end, I'll, I'll come back up. I wanna invite some time to pray for you. Some of you, I just think, probably are in need of prayer in these areas of walking in the purpose that God has for you and in maybe feeling like you know he sustains you, but you're just, you're struggling in that, struggling to feel like God is actually sustaining you. So we just wanna, as a church family, pray. So the team's coming up. Why don't you, uh, let me pray, and then we'll stand together and we'll worship the Lord. So Lord, we love you. We are in awe of what you have revealed about yourself, Jesus, to us in this text. And I pray now, we're, we're gonna come to sing, and we've listened, and we've been listening to your truth, and it's a lot to take in. So help us to just simplify now and to gaze upon you. Worship is a gift that you give us. And so our hearts, I pray that, that they're just, our hearts are now filled up and ready to overflow with praise to you. I pray that for my church family right now, even as we stand to sing. Guide us in our worship. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to us, lead us. We just, we're, we're giving our attention to you where it belongs. In the name of Jesus, amen.